0: Open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of James. We'll be in chapter 5 this morning, verses 1 through 6. It's page 1013 in the Pew Bible, provided for you. Well, something happens to our ears when we get kids. On the one hand, uh, we lose some sensitivity in our hearing. And so those of you who have had children and they're out of the house or maybe haven't had children, you, know, you hear things in this room that maybe a, a young family doesn't hear. And sometimes that young family has kids in the room and they're training them to, to be quiet on a Sunday morning and they think they're quiet, but they're, they're not that quiet. So we bear, we bear with each other and that's a good endeavor. Uh, training children to be in here with us. Uh, Speaking personally, sometimes a child cries during a sermon, and then I get asked, Oh, did you hear the baby? No, no. But uh, don't abuse that, please. (laughs) On the other hand, our ears become more sensitive. You can be a playground or a play place at the mall, and there's lots of noise around, And there are children crying, and then your child cries, and you can hear not just the voice of your child through the voices of the other children, but you can hear what kind of cry it is, whether it's a big deal or no big deal, uh, a cry of pain, a cry of sadness, a cry of anger. Maybe there's a little bit of that on the playground. Our Heavenly Father has very sensitive hearing for His children. Let's read together James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. and He does not resist you. Well, this is God's word for us this morning. Well, God is about humbling, excuse me, God is about making his people whole by humbling us with respect to wealth. He is about making his people whole by humbling us with respect to wealth. This is the third sermon in a set of three, three paragraphs in James, um, applying this problem of pride and humility. God, he has said that God gives grace to the humble. But he opposes the proud. and This is a book against the proud. And it's a book in which God gives grace by his spirit through his word to the humble. And this is a gracious word for us this morning. Doesn't sound like that on the surface. I'll explain in a few minutes. Two sermons ago, he addressed the matter of the tongue and our pride. Last week, our posture toward the future and our pride. Or or our our tongues, our our calendars. and, And now he's in our wallets, our our pocketbooks, our our bank accounts. He addresses this matter of richness, excuse me, riches and our pride. But how can I say this? I mean, I started off with uh, an anecdote about the sensitivity of hearing and parents and how our God hears our cries and all this, and then I read this. It doesn't sound like the right sermon. Like maybe I remembered an introduction for a different sermon and then uh, forgot the text that we were in or read the wrong text, and that is That is not the case. We've said that the book of James is an especially practical book, and that is true. And we've also said that while we sure like practical teaching, we ought to be careful um, not to have a, a trite or easy spirit about that, because these are not easy words. Well, this week, I don't know, it seems like James might have gone a little too far. Yes, his words sting... But how could he say this to his readers? Come now, you rich, weep and howl. You've laid up treasure in the last days. He's talking about all the wealth that they've accumulated and where it all leads. There's a certain storing up they have done for the last days that isn't exactly going to take care of them. Uh, it's a promise of certain judgment, it seems. Storing up treasure in the last days. That's eschatological end time, end time judgment. There's no call to repent here. There's just very harsh condemnation. He's cornering them. He has his finger in their face. And he ends with this line. He does not resist you. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. It may be that an account of their handling of those under them that some have died. Maybe that is known to the readers. Maybe that's just what happens here and there. But in any case, he ends by saying he does not resist you. You've done this to them and they haven't even resisted you. That's how bad you are. So how can James say all of this? And has he gone too far. We don't want to ask the question, but it's okay to ask the question if it leads us to a place of hearing God's word uh, better. Well, before we get into our outline this morning, I'll put two questions in front of you that can that can help us. Uh, who is James writing to? And who is James writing for? Who is James writing to? Well, he's writing to the rich Come now, you rich. But we could add the word, Some rich. For, even in this passage here, we can see that the audience of his concern is not just those with lots of wealth. It is those who have received, gotten that wealth through ill-gotten means. Those who have Uh, kept back the wages of laborers by by fraud. Uh, The hearers he has in mind to speak to are likely, almost certainly, a wealthy landowner class uh, among whom it was near absolutely characteristic that they would abuse uh, the working class, their workers, their workers who had little legal recourse for abuse, their workers that were at the mercy of the landowners. And every age and place has its own economic configurations, and some would be more just than others, but even in settings like this, there would be just and unjust ways to occupy one seat or another in an economy. And it would not be wrong to be a landowner, to employ workers. That is not the problem. But it was characteristic of that class, so characteristic of that class, that he can simply address them as... The rich. So it's important to make a distinction between where we are today and who they were then. It's not as simple as saying, oh, well, we're more rich today, so it applies to all of us in the same way. That's not the case. Or that there are rich people today, and so the 1%, if you call them that, and that's kind of a, an, an erroneous way to talk anyways, the 1% is always changing. But in any case, um, it would be wrong to speak about the rich If they are a class, as a class, as the target of these words, it is not necessarily the case. Could be, not necessarily the case. Here we have a class of wealthy landowners who are the rich and are the landowners who are, as a class, typically holding back wages by fraud. It's how they're getting it and what are they doing it. They're living luxuriously. They're self-indulgent and how are they keeping it. They're condemning and murdering and crushing the righteous person. We'll get into all of that in a little more slow motion as we uh, get into our sermon. So he's addressing the rich, but we need to be more specific. We might say the filthy, stinking rich. And that just doesn't mean having just a ton of wealth. At least here I mean it. It's filthy wealth. It's wealth that, that stinks. Uh, it's, a, it's an aroma, has an aroma of death to it. The rich, the filthy, stinking rich. But is he addressing Christians? He's addressed the wealthy among the Christians before in this letter. And called for repentance. He has addressed the church as they welcome the wealthy on the Lord's Day. Presumably some guests and presumably those among them who are wealthy. And James is not above offering a sharp word of rebuke to Christians, so that's not a problem. But this seems to go farther than James has gone, doesn't it? Is he addressing Christians? Well, hes we might think he is. He's addressed this letter over and again to brothers and dear brothers and brothers. And, and then he's made that turn in chapter 4 and called them, you adulterous people, and argued that that's his hearers, and he was gently, tenderly speaking with them, in part so that he could speak a sharp word to them right in the center of the book. The heart of their problem is their relationship with God. Uh, They are divided in their hearts between God and other, other things so that he could call them adulterous people. Nevertheless, he offers grace to those who humble themselves and that's on offer to them. Well, no grace on offer to the rich here And I would suggest that that's an indication that he actually has a different audience in in mind here. And that's not not just a way to get out of an otherwise difficult passage. And it's not going to get us out from underneath um, the demands of of what the gospel and and Christ calls us to in allegiance to him instead of of money either. I just think it's actually the case. Come now, you rich. Well, he said, come now, brothers, dear brothers, come now, brothers... And now he says, come now, you rich. That is a difference in the way that he's addressing them. And it's a difference that comes not in the very center of the book with the word of grace, even with rebuke. It comes tucked down into the the list of applications here. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl. That weeping and howling, especially that word howl there, that's the language of the Old Testament prophets who called down judgment on the nations and on the nation of Israel in her sin, in promising exile, howl this isn't a way that the apostles talk to their Christian readers, to members of the churches they they write to. No, that's a different way of talking and, and he promises, if not alludes to judgment in the last days you've laid up treasure in the last days. We'll get to that in a bit, and then there's no call for repentance here, just a condemnatory Closing line. He does not even resist you, and you condemn and murder the righteous person. This is not. These are not among the righteous. Uh, he is speaking to those who are not Christians. Uh, Christians here. Uh, so how does this work? I'll offer two illustrations as to what I think he's doing. Um, yesterday. Oh, I hope. Uh, It was none of your kids. I mean that. Um, uh, But it's okay if it was too, and just know that I love you. And um, so I was at the bounce park with uh, my two littlest children, a four and a three-year-old. It's a three-year-old's birthday. He's four today. And uh, so I was going to take him to the bounce park, and I told myself, I'm going to stay? It's like, Like, see how far you can run. If you're a runner, okay, I'm going to see how long I can stay at the bounce park. Um, I'm going to stay until he says, I'm tired and would like to go home. It was there about five and a half hours. (laughs) It's a long time. (laughs) So, and I saw a handful of you there, and I saw various friends from the community I've made over the years. Everyone comes to the bounce park, and one of you asked how long I've been there, and I I gave a time, and it was actually two hours later than I had arrived, so I was not keeping track of time myself. Maybe that had a little bit of something to do with what transpired next. Uh, you know, I've got these little kids, and there's lots and lots of kids in these big bounce houses disappearing, climbing up slides and going down. and I'm, I'm watching them the whole time. and then four young teenage boys barrel through the door and then barrel into the bounce house with my kids in there that I can't see and tear up the hill and just fall down the I kid, it could have been on the other side. they certainly weren't watching. And it was like a jungle gym for teenagers. And so uh, I couldn't quite even talk to them over all the noise, but I grabbed a worker and pointed this out, and I got my kids out. And then they got out of there, and then they ran over here and then jumped into the other bounce thing, and we're bouncing off the walls, and you had little kids in there. Temperature's up. So I said, (laughs) guys, get out. And I had them stand in front of me like they're my kids or something. And... (laughs) I told them, we've got three- and four-year-old kids all over this bounce house, and you're not going to run around like this, or I'm going to have them kick you out, or I'll kick you out. Something like this, okay? <laughs> and then when I went home, and it was quiet, and I was laying in my bed, I was like, man, that was a loud room, and it was three hours in, and all the noise, and, but they needed it. Their fathers had not taught them how to be in public. Fathers, teach your children how to be in public. It was a shameful way those, those young men were acting. And I don't mean just to be hard on a younger generation or something. We have to do the work, fathers, of raising them up. It wasn't okay. So I was making up for a lack of fathering there to some extent. And here's my point. My children didn't didn't hear it because they were on the other side. But if they would have heard it and reflected on it, and if they had a few more years, they would have heard the voice of a father who loves them and who is out to protect them and who is jealous for their good. Now, that's what I think is happening here. God, through the Apostle James, is speaking a sharp word at these unrighteous oppressors. If no one else will. And his children are to hear how much he cares for them in this strong word. Part of the puzzle here is that they're not reading the book. So how does that work? Well, imagine a people rallied together for a just cause. Not every people that rallies together in the street is there for a just cause, but imagine that with me. And imagine a politician, a righteous politician with a bullhorn in the town square hollering and yelling out at unrighteous politicians who endorse and even promote the murder of children or the mutilation of young people who are confused. And why is he doing that? Well, well, they're not there to hear. Oh, but there are those who need to hear this. And it has its place. So, So James is writing, if you will, to the unrighteous rich, the, the filthy, stinking rich, if you will. But he is writing for his churches. Do you follow me? Does that help you to hear this right now? And it doesn't mean that this shouldn't land on you if you're in sin, committing fraud, and living on years of lies in your business. You're especially in unbelief having harshly oppressed those under your watch in the place of work, even if not this much. doesn't mean that. It just means that James has written these words for his hearers who are not those who are oppressing others, but who are those who might envy those who are rich and oppressing. For they're in church, but they would probably much rather be at the beach with their extra house or two they drove up with whatever they drove up in but maybe they would much rather have the car parked outside the the home that they drove by on their way to church they're here but they'd much rather be on a vacation in a faraway land that they observed a long lost friend on you can find out where people are on facebook it doesn't take much Look who is in uh, Australia for their uh, vacation, whatever. Um, Envy is a real problem. And envy would have been a problem for his readers. And James is concerned that his readers not envy the rich who have gotten their wealth by unjust gain. So I hope that makes sense of how to hear this. We'll approach our sermon, the rest of it, in two parts The cry of the oppressor who will see misery, and the cry of the oppressed whose misery is seen. First, the cry of the oppressor who will see misery. Before we get into this, a word about the word oppressor. Uh, Marxism, which I'd suggest is the dominant ideology on offer today. It is the air that we, we breathe. It is the interpretive lens through which to view a person and their circumstances and to think you know the first thing about them, typically by by color or gender. You might know whether a person is oppressed or an oppressor. And the way that Marxism works and why it keeps swinging back around, especially uh, in places that have been dominated by the scriptures and the Christian West is vulnerable to Marxism, perhaps especially, uh, because we really do believe there's a such thing as oppression. And we really do think, believe there's a such thing as oppressors, and there really are the oppressed. And so communities and civilizations whose consciences are informed by those categories and who are sensitive, who value not oppressing, and are vulnerable to the suggestion that there's oppression there, and there's oppression there, and they're oppressors. And so we have to stay in the driver's seat. We have to let the scriptures stay in the driver's seat as to where these lines fall, because others will try to draw them for us and put some of even us in one camp or another, one church in one camp or another based on on color or cars. So that's just a word about vocabulary. I'm going to use oppressor and oppressed language here, but in a way that matches Scripture and maybe not what you've been given. The cry of the oppressor who will see misery will be in mostly verses 1 through 3. Come now, you rich, James writes, Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Seems to be a promise of judgment, not just in this life, but final end time judgment. Well, what do these rich see when they look at their lots? Well, they see riches. They're certainly trained with their attention on their riches. Uh, They see a dresser at home and a closet at home full of all the garments that they want. Uh, lots of, of garments. Garments of every style they want to show up in at the next appointment or meeting or gathering. Garments that would keep them comfortable in any season, whether cold or hot. Lots of options. Expensive garments. Carefully selected Carefully created garments. They see gold and silver in their portfolios. A preparation for the future. You need More than garments if you're going to be safe down the road. But they've got a portfolio that includes all the right investments for their age. And while we've said that they are, they're trouble and they've gotten this by ill-gotten gain. No doubt these are smart people. And made some smart investments, I'm sure. Well, that's what they see. They, they look at their present situation, their wardrobe and their portfolio, and they extrapolate out into the future that they will be just fine. In fact, they spend a lot of time thinking about the future and making sure that they will be okay down, down the road. Well, What does James see? Well, we see what James sees. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. And your gold and silver have corroded. James, you see, looks to the farther future with spiritual eyes, and he sees that their wardrobe and their portfolio can't do anything for them on the other side of death when they meet the Lord of glory who's given it all to them, in whom they have not given and entrusted their life. So James looks forward to that far future beyond the grave, and he then looks at their present through that lens. And what does he see? Well, it's so clear to him what is coming that he can, at least as it's translated, put it in past tense, have rotted. It's perfect tense. But this is a reality as it stands. They have riches, yes, but their riches have rotted. They have garments, yes, but they're as good as moth-eaten, And they have gold and silver, but they're as good as having corroded. James looks to the future and sees their present in light of that. Garments are moth-eaten. It's hard to imagine a lowlier place for your garments to end up than with a moth, and I suppose the only lower place and the mouth of a moth is the belly of a moth, and that's where all their garments have gone. Ever had a really nice garment, and maybe a moth ate it, or there's a stain on it, and it's ruined? There's as good as ruined. Well, what do they hear when they look at their wealth and their riches? Because money talks, doesn't it? Well, they hear, you are in style... You are important, you are looked up to, and as you look to the future, their riches say to them, you are safe and you are secure. Well, what does James here, Verse 3, the second half of it, your gold and silver have corroded, he continues, and their corrosion will be an evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Slowing down over those words helps us see why we had to do that work at the beginning as to who he was writing to and who he's writing for. All that you've saved and all that you've hung in that wardrobe will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. In other words, what are they to hear with James's help, but that their riches are crying out as evidence against them. Not only will their riches not deliver on what they promise and what they expect through their riches, but their riches will do the opposite. They will actually testify against them as to their sinful actions in order to gain the riches. The riches, for them, are proof of their corruption. and the riches are also crying out a word of judgment upon them the riches eaten by insects or elements will actually eat them he's saying and you can see how James is preaching here in a different way than he has preached to his Christian readers he's preaching as a prophet to those who stand condemned because of their rebellion against the god of heaven, And there's this incredible irony that I've hinted at here. You have laid up treasure in the last days. You see, they're planning for the future with all of their silver and gold and making sure that they are safe and secure and doing so at all cost, cost to other people. And he's saying, oh yes, you have laid up treasure in the last days. Your garments are moth-eaten and your, your silver and gold are corroded their evidence against you. In fact, they'll eat you like fire. You've done good by laying up treasure for the last days. So are riches a problem? No, riches are not a problem. There is no trouble in the scripture given to Job or about Job for his great wealth. He was a landowner and a owner of many servants and oversaw a great operation and was a godly man. He did not sin in what he said when the Lord took some of it away. One sign, we're in the right place with our riches. Uh, Abraham was not given trouble for his great wealth. And we could go down the list. There are New Testament saints that are mentioned who have plenty of room in their home to gather even, even a church. And we praise God for those of you who, with whom the Lord is blessed in that way. It's fine to say that uh, when you use that for his purposes and give glory to him for it and hold it with an open hand hand. The problem is not riches. The Bible is consistent that there is a problem with the love of money. We cannot serve two masters, and and this is where it it goes ultimately. And so we should stand uh, warned. Warned, do not envy the wealth of others, and in particular here, do not envy those who have gotten it by ill, gotten gain. John Calvin is helpful on this point it's not for nothing does the Lord by his prophets throw sharp words at those who sleep in ivory couches, who pour on precious uh, ointments, who entrance their palates with the sweetness to the notes of the zither. Does anyone know what a zither is? I did not look it up, but you know what he means. There's good food out there. To all the intents like fat cattle in rich pastures, All this is said to make us keep a perspective in all our creature comforts. Self-indulgence wins no favor with God. James has a regard to the faithful, that they, hearing of the miserable end of the rich, might not envy their fortune, and also that knowing that God would be the avenger of the wrongs they suffered, they might with a calm and resigned mind bear them." And so this is part of the good news of the gospel, is that we have received, as Peter put it, an inheritance. We've received it through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the first fruits of a new humanity and a new creation of which we're a part if we're born again, to a living hope that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and it's kept in heaven for you. And not only is it being guarded, but you are being guarded through faith. And God's doing it. So you have all that you need if you have the one who has everything you need. And if you have the Lord through Jesus, then you have it all. And so we don't need to envy one another in this room. We don't need to envy those who are outside this room who have more than we might want. It is a basic fact of Christian understanding of the world that there is a God in heaven who stands behind and who orders Where we live and what we have. And so work hard and work wisely. But you don't know what's going to come tomorrow. Whether the markets will fall at no fault of your own. Or whether you'll fall into a windfall of money. No work of your own. And these things come and they go. And trust the Lord with them. And pray that prayer that the writer of Proverbs 30, I believe it is, prayed. Not Proverbs 31 Lord, don't give me riches or poverty that I might not be tempted to steal and deny you or otherwise be rich and forget you. So he's at work in what you have and in what you lack. And pray he works in you through your wealth. The cry of the oppressor who will see misery. A warning To us not to envy others for their wealth. Certainly those who have gotten it by ill-gotten means. Now we move on. The cry of the oppressed whose misery is seen. The cry of the oppressor who will see misery. And now the cry of the oppressed whose misery is seen. Verses 4 through 6. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. The landowners are insensitive to the cries of their workers. But the Lord has very sensitive hearing. And right here, a great word of comfort for us, that the cries of the harvesters, the cries of those who have been stolen from, who have been defrauded, who have been neglected, who have been crushed, even murdered, reach the ears of the Lord of hosts. Three kinds of cries. I I think we can hear here from three kinds of, of oppression. The cry of the defrauded. They're all the same group. We'll break it apart here. The cry of the defrauded. Behold, the wages of the laborers gets right into what they're owed, who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud. These landowners, these rich, did not hear, apparently, God's word through Moses. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land with your own towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. It's interesting, James is speaking to the unbelieving rich outside the people of God. Yet this word, this law given through Moses to his people is binding on them just the same. For it's tied not merely to the covenant, but it appears in the old covenant because it is a truth that should be plain from creation itself. For we have all been made in God's image, and as one works and is a part of an agreement to be paid, one is owed what they are owed. And the laborers have kept back by fraud what the workers are owed they wouldn't have listened to god's word through moses in leviticus 19:13 a verse that keeps coming up in james you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him the wages of a hired worker shall remain with you shall not remain with you all night until the morning you see these workers were living day to day and the landowners might keep back what they are owed and leave them without money to buy food or to care for their families In order to hoard more for themselves. Whatever they might do with it. They might by way of fraud uh, delay payment. They might diminish payment. Or they might even in cases deny payment. And I'll talk in a few moments about how to make sure we're on the right side of this as Christians. And provide at some risk uh, some detailed application. Just a few minutes we'll get to that. So defraud, those who are defrauded. And I could quote verses from the Proverbs and the Prophets and from the Psalms just the same. They haven't heard God's word, but God in heaven hears the cries of those who have been been defrauded. The cry of those who have been neglected. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom, the prophet Ezekiel said. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease. Look what comes with that, but did not aid the poor and needy. There's something about self indulgence which goes along with the oppression of the weak. And so, this word here in verse 5 you've neglected, you've lived on earth in luxury. It's not just that they had nice things and you shouldn't have nice things. It's that they've lived in luxury and in self-indulgence. And what's implied there is that they have tended to their own needs, but they have neglected the needs of those who work, work for them. And James is also speaking concerning the cry of those who have been crushed. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter, Verse 6 now, you've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Condemned, it's legal language. Uh, These landowners would manipulate the law in order to take property away from others, in order to keep back wages on a technicality. And then murdered, as I suggested, it may well be that some were so neglected and so uh, mishandled that their misfortune led ultimately to their to their death. murdered the righteous person, and having done so when they did not even put up a resistance, the poor crushed legally and and physically. well, a few words. Uh, in these moments now about fraud, I think this is one of the rare opportunities to address this matter and could use a few particular words and i 'll just have to trust you with whether or not these words um, uh, these words are true for you or uh, are right in your in your context but in the preparation of preaching on this text of communicated and conversed with a handful of friends near and far uh, concerning their workplaces. And one one consistent reply back was, oh, well, we're really not able to do a lot of things. The law really keeps us hemmed in. And there's always the but. There are some things that we can do and that, that are done in our industry that while not regulated against, are nevertheless unethical. And that's a good way for a Christian to start. So some words to three groups. Employers first. Employers, do not defraud your employees. Let us not be on the wrong side of this passage here. Your employees are part of the reason your your business exists. Do not hurt them, but help them along In life, Uh, do not embed fine print in your hiring contracts that is purposefully confusing or predatory. And I'm thinking of one story where an employee's contract was up, and so she took a job in another city, but the company didn't like that and got upset, so they auto renewed her contract for a month and made her pay it back. There was a, a deliberately confusing and convoluted line in the fine print of her original contract that apparently was there or at least was leveraged so that the company could act in a vindictive way when she left at an otherwise agreeable time. If you're a Christian, don't give yourself to that kind of fine print. It may be legal, but that doesn't make it ethical. Legal fraud exists because moral fraud exists, and the law doesn't attempt to manage every move we make, so we should not be so shallow in business ethics as to be satisfied with merely being clear of the law. Christian in your business, don't just be satisfied that you're a godly Christian if you're clear of the law. Do not change a salesperson's commission structure to keep from paying them the profit that you promised. Or you may have to change the commission structure for a legitimate reason, but you will know when you're wanting them to do well just without doing as well. If you're a Christian... Mind that matter of business. And if you say you're going to give 50-50 with the salesperson, don't manipulate the books to make it look like they're getting their share when really they're getting 40 or 30%. And if in your company there's an agreement, formal or informal, that you will share some of the profits from a good year in the form of bonuses, especially if you've been projecting a carrot of that reward for your workers, then give them the bonus that they are due. If ever you find yourself making sure a decision isn't written down or typed in an email, you might be trying to hide something. No, you might be trying to hide sin, and the Lord sees. Positively, look for opportunities to develop the less than ideal workers, but workers for whom this job could be the crucial life move if they'll give it the effort. It's part of your responsibility. And finally, and this one is tricky, as so much of business is, And I'm being very black and white here. But you need to work these things out in your own context. It is hard, but observe with attention the fine line between squeezing more productivity out of your people and squeezing the life out of your people. And for those of you for whom the life has been squeezed out, hear that as a word, if you will, from James to an employer who has not treated you well and take some comfort. And Christian, hear this as a rebuke if you've been about this. Remember that your business is about making the world a little better, and it doesn't do that by making the lives of some terrible. So lead in a healthy culture and with reasonable expectations. Now we might stop there and we'd be fine, but this word about ill-gotten gain is good for us, so let's take a few more moments on it. Remember, we live in a different socioeconomic situation in which workers have a lot more power than they did in this situation, and so I do need to address employees in this situation as well. Common grace through good laws and competition means employers don't have the kind of power they would have had in the first century. Thankfully, laborers have a tremendous amount, but it can be abused in the other direction, and employers will know that full well. So employees, do not defraud your employers. You can do that. Your employer is a gift to you from God and requires your respect, so don't have someone else punch you in when you're not there. That's defrauding your employer, unless there's some kind of an arrangement for that. And don't call in sick when you're not sick, Christian. And if you're trusted to work away from the office, when you're supposed to be working, work, and don't misrepresent your hours, and don't take business away from your company and keep it secretly to yourself on the side, and don't steal leads away from your company where it's understood that you would not do that. And now a word to employees and employers. The only way either of you will make a living is if customers trust you, so protect and do not abuse that trust. Don't embed fine print in your contracts with your customers requiring absurd things from them in order to fulfill your part of the contract. Don't take advantage of the elderly, and this is especially close to James's concern. They don't need the retirement plan that will bring you the greatest commission if they don't need the retirement plan that will bring you the greatest commission. There are a hundred applications in that direction. Don't take advantage of families in crisis and don't churn someone's account taking advantage of more commissions without their knowledge. And don't hire undocumented workers as a way of gaining an advantage in your marketplace, tempting others to do the same because there is no way that they could compete in a market where you're functioning in an illegal fashion, tempted to do so themselves. And we can't move on from ill gotten gain without addressing customers as well, so let's just keep going here. Ill gotten gain isn't just monetary, it can be material, a service, or a product obtained by unjust means. So don't duplicate copywritten material. Don't share a subscription to what are always expensively provided services. Don't lie about eligibility for a certain discount or sue a company over a petty infraction. Everything comes at a cost, and the seller gets to decide the price tag. Decide if it's worth it, and then make your decision, and deny them the service if it's too much for you. And don't commit insurance fraud. I know an insurance company is like the exact obvious opposite of an impoverished person, but nevertheless, don't do it. I remember a time preaching on a matter along these lines, and a woman came up to me and the week after, and said that her car was broken into, and the insurance company asked if she had left it unlocked. And she said, at the advice of everyone that she knows, say it was locked. So she said it was locked. And after the sermon, she called the insurance company, and she said she'd misrepresented and lied, and the car was, in fact, not locked. I don't know what followed from there, but she took it, and that was the Christian thing to do. Well, you can pick up where I leave off, and you know your life in your particular corner of our economy, better than I know your life. In our particular corner, your particular corner of the economy. So, as sensible people, I trust you with that. But having heard all of that, maybe you heard so back to his readers, James's readers now, who he's writing for. Maybe you you didn't hear yourself on the on the sinning end of one of those points of fraud, but maybe you maybe you were on the receiving end of someone else's fraud. And maybe thank God for laws informed in the West here and in America by the scriptures and our Christian heritage that forms and undergirds our culture and civilization. So thank God, maybe it hasn't been as bad as it could be, but maybe you really are on the receiving end of someone else's ill-gotten gain Having found yourself where you are in life because someone defrauded you. Maybe terribly. Maybe setting the whole course of your life. Maybe you lost that job and couldn't get another one in your field. That really does happen in a church this large. There are many of you who find yourself on that side. And let me just say, don't envy the unrighteous rich. Don't do it for one minute. They've stored up treasure for themselves in the last days. That's a warning to you. You can sin in bitterness and envy in your position in this story. But also, take comfort that you are storing up for yourself in the last day's treasure. And even by this very trial, which James has in mind, you can have all joy and count it all joy because he is completing you. He is making you more steadfast. He is even making you whole through your suffering with respect to Riches. Well, you'll remember the woman who comes to Jesus. One woman crying and, and wiping his feet with her tears. That's one cry the Lord hears for sure. And, with, and anointing him with oil. Another woman who comes and anoints Jesus with, with oil and is criticized, even by Judas, who doesn't understand. He'd had his hand in the bag, taking for himself for some time. He would cry as well, but it would be too late for him. He would weep and howl, not as one who had faith in Jesus, but as one who nevertheless understood the consequences of his actions in the end. So friends, be warned, the Lord sees unrighteous actions to gain riches, and those who do so are preparing for themselves a slaughter and have killed the righteous, And be comforted as well, for the Lord sees your oppressed state. And he is preparing you for heaven through it. And yes, the righteous one, more righteous than you, has been killed. So that you might make it to the end and not be condemned. For your own sins, and they are many, but that you might be blessed in him. Let's pray. Well, Father, we... We thank you for a railing, hollering, and upset apostle in James, and for the prophets that preached similarly before him. And it is sobering, for we find ourselves in many ways, perhaps, on the other side, on the receiving end of his rebuke. Uh, Forgive us, Father, where we are guilty of committing fraud, and we commit our ways to you to confess these things and to make them right where we can. But Father, help us to receive the comfort that we ought here, to hear the loud voice of a Father who loves us and cares for us and hears the cries of the harvesters. You hear our cries. And in all of this, keep us humble with our wealth that we might be made whole. In Christ's name we pray, amen.